This is the latest edition of Toby Hedrick's Who's Round, you say? Oh, I like the sound of that. Well, uh, this is quite noisy in the background, but that's sort of appropriate considering uh, the job description of my latest victim. I'm now going to ask who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, hello, my name is Tony Millier. Um, I did quite a few of the Doctor Whos in the old days uh, at the BBC, which I left in 78. So I worked, um, first of all, as a newcomer, I pushed a boom on one of the first, uh, with the first Doctor Who, William Hartnell. I knew nothing very much about television because I joined the BBC, really, as a, an engineer. Uh, they did a mass recruitment at that time because 625 and colour was on the horizon and they wanted lots of engineers. Uh, I was at outside broadcasts and it, um, it wasn't very fulfilling because I was put into monitor maintenance. There were six of us. We'd probably get two broken monitors a week, so there was a scramble to be able to work on it. So I saw this advert saying, anyone want to do sound? The sound had never really been much that I'd uh, been involved in, apart from playing in a skiffle group. And uh, so I went for it, and they said, all right, we'll train you. Six months at Evesham, uh, no, six months course, uh, I think it was three weeks at Evesham, and then working in the studios. After the six months, I thought, well, I've done my six months. I'll go back to what was called the Palace of Arts, the OB uh, Television uh, Centre uh, at Wembley. I uh, got there and they said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I've done my six months. They said, no, 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 you've got to go back. They want you. Um, so that's when I, I stopped uh, being an engineer and uh, became a technical operator. Uh, that's why I was pushing a boom for William Hartnell, a most scratchy man who didn't have to act, he really was like that. And uh, uh, <coughs> so I then worked my way as an assistant uh, to the what they call SA1, Sound Assistant 1, uh, because of Sound Assistant 2. So I, uh, I then had to retrain as an operator, and I was one of the few people who had what they called Easy's 1 and Easy's 2 engineering establishment standing instructions. Easy's one was engineering, which means you were competent to wield a, well, probably a, a, an oscilloscope and a soldering iron and mend things, or even make things. And Easy's two was what they call the, uh, the guys with the, uh, the brothel creepers who were the arty people who didn't really know anything, uh, <laughs> which I, uh, I seem to fit in quite well, obviously. Um, I think there may have been some hidden frictions because I'd just come in over the heads of other technical operators. But um, anyway, I seemed to get on all right. Um, eventually a job came up for Sound Supervisor, which I somehow got through that. And uh, so I was then in charge of the uh, sound on various productions, starting with probably Play School and Jack and Ori's, that sort of building up. Uh, then I found... I think they took a chance on me. I, I, I did a few Doctor Who's, and uh, they were fun. And, uh, well, it's not quite the rest is history, but that was from about 
the mid-60s to when I left in 78. So I then worked with Patrick Troughton. Uh, this was as a sound supervisor, uh, who was lovely. And then uh, John Pertwee, who did a lot, who could be a little bit difficult. We'll go into that later. And then uh, Tom Baker, who I thought was great. And he had such a lovely smile and that wretched scarf that he never actually fell over. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, your, your first credit on Doctor Who is, is a Barry Letts directed story called Enemy of the World. Barry was a great producer. He, he, uh, he, he, I think he was aware of everyone's pro- potential problems in a production. And, uh, well, as you know, television is, is, a, is a game of compromise. I mean, lighting and sound being a a good example you know the uh, the lighting man wants to create a particular effect I need to pick up the sound on a boom what do booms do they cause shadows they don't pick up sound they're, they're just a nuisance but Barry would understand that sort of thing and we'd somehow work around it and uh, given goodwill by everyone we got the show out it was lit reasonably well and the sound was as well good as one could hope for uh, in the early days, we didn't really have the advantage of rock and roll dubbing. That's something that I got involved in later on. Uh, there was a thing called Cypher, which John Eden Eden, the um, sound manager C, I think he was called, which was uh, mainly overlooking the sound for drama. And uh, anyway, for some reason, he, he, he put me in charge of instigating and training this thing called Cypher, which was an 8-track machine, uh, so you could track lay afterwards, you could do th- interesting things with uh, a little relay, you could program that to come in and out, so you could dip the odd bits out, uh, and you finished up with a final mix, which is obviously was still in mono, and that was then relayed back onto the uh, two-inch tape as a sound-only record. Before that, it, I think there'd been machine-to-machine, which was quite expensive, and it was one, two, three, go, and you keep going till you get to the end. And if there's a cock-up, you can't do a pick-up. So that was quite hairy, and dubbing allowed you to be a lot more creative. We got the benefit of time code, which we hadn't had uh, in the early 60s. Time code in vision, great invention. At first I didn't like it because I used to do things by instinct and counting and I had my own way of doing things. You know, it's, uh, When he puts, a count, uh, puts that cup down, count to three, play the music, uh, dip it out when the door opens and so on but we could all do that all as, as separate entities and then combine it together and I was a great advocate eventually it was it was the way to go uh, and I stayed with dubbing in fact for the, probably most of the rest of my career it was post-production talk about, should we talk a bit about the music? yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. so Dudley would, uh, would watch this uh, with the director and myself and often the uh, the person who would be doing the uh, creating the sounds at Radiophonics Workshop, no longer with us. They, um, the mostly Dick Mills did uh, uh, was doing that, 
before that, Peter Hodgson. Right, yeah, Brian Hodgson. Brian, Brian Hodgson. Brian Hodgson. Sorry, exclusively. Yeah, that was their bit. Apart from the composer of the opening music, I think the composer of the opening music was Delia Derbyshire based on an idea of Ron Grainer. The story goes that he wrote, you've probably heard this, that he, uh, he sketched it out on the back of an envelope, the sort of thing he wanted. Uh, she went away and created all these sounds, one tape loop, and then it changes pitch, that's another, all that. And she played it to him and he said, this is, <laughs> this is a story, I don't know if it's true. Uh, Ron said to Adelia, did I really write that? And she said, <laughs> Bits of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great theme, though. It's a great theme. I met her once because I was allowed to, uh, by my boss at the Sound uh, Centre to have a fortnight attachment to Radiophonics. And she used to wander in a, a very free, um, free living lady in a, a waft of uh, cigarette smoke of a certain character. <laughs> And she'd probably work through the night and do things, and uh, she she was uh, she was great. She was very inventive. Even whether that had anything to do with having a maths degree at Cambridge, I don't know. But uh, clever lady. Uh, Dick Mills again. Well, going back to Dudley Dudley Simpson, say would then have a live music session. Uh, Tam, no, I've forgotten his name. But he'd get the uh, the drummer to bring in strange things. He said, "Have you got that cart with that cart spring?" Because it goes boom, 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 boom. strange noises like that, which would be practical noises. Uh, plus, uh, probably electronic keyboard at that time, whatever else he needed. That was part of the music. Then he'd take that and put it on a thing called the Delaware, which was one of the first big synthesizers at Radiophonics with Dick Mills and they create all the electronic lines and I would be given a tape all marked up the right durations um, on quarter inch tape with a final mix which was what we'd play onto the 8 track in the cypher suite when we, when we had cypher before that you just play, play one, two, three, go uh, <laughs> that's it. it was rehearsed this, this machine to obviously this is about a day's work plus half a day's preparation so it's quite a lot of work in it um, anyway, that's the way the music came from Dudley, and he'd say he did an awful lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, shall I, shall I name some of your stories and see if you've got any specific memories? And don't worry if you haven't. You did a few with the Daleks, the first of which was Day of the Daleks, directed by Paul Bernard. Uh, oh, yes. I think we had problems with that, but it, we got there. Uh, I remember somehow sound was always difficult with Paul Bernard. I think he liked wide shots, cut to a close up time type of production, uh, which was a bit difficult. He was quite avant-garde in his picture composition, because yeah, he'd been a designer, I think. Yeah, so. that's it, yeah. I met him years later in another place, but uh, he was doing doco then. Dalek's voice, I didn't, I didn't, uh, wasn't involved in the, the system of making the Dalek voice, but very briefly, it was a man with a, a thing called a lip mic, you know, the sort of thing that sports commenters use, yeah. sitting in a corner of the studio with a little monitor in his script, it was that would come up to me. I put it through a, a box of tricks. Well, actually, it was a, a what they call a breadboard. It was a piece of wood with things nailed on it. It was a couple of transformers and some diodes uh, called a ring modulator, uh, which needed um, an input 
of 30 hertz sine wave, which was given to us on a reel of tape. <laughs> so you had to play it, make sure you had enough tape left to do the sequence. Uh, so that, <clears throat> plus the, the way the guy delivered. If you didn't have the right delivery, whatever I did upstairs with this ring modulator, the, the humanity bit which made them so scary didn't probably come in if it was done very flat. Because mm. later on we had K9, of course. Yes. Uh, Peter Leeson is one uh, John, of them. John, John Leeson. John Leeson. John Leeson. Who I, David Briley, yeah. I I met, John's the definitive. Uh, well, I met him... About a year ago at a wine tasting, he's, he's a, a, a wine educator now. He is? Yes, and he was about to do something with the lovely Sarah Jane, Liz uh, Sladen, yeah. and uh, if I'm biased, she was one of the nicest people I've met, ever. Uh, I don't know why, she was just great. And even, even when she did the, the you know, her own series, she was still... Didn't, hadn't gone to her head, she was great. Uh, the Curse of Peladon, which was directed by Lenny Main. Lenny Main, God rest him, yes. No, what a, another sad loss. Uh, uh, fell off a boat in the yeah. channel. Was heard saying, help, I'm over here, but he hadn't got his life jacket on. So so I'm told. I wasn't there, obviously. But yes, that was. Uh, he was great. I'd seen him first as a floor manager. Uh, in Riverside, I'm diverting again. It's all right. Uh, Diversions are good. For some reason, we were we were doing the the Beatles miming to a track, and he was the floor manager, and he was joshing them along. I mean, <laughs> come on, pro- just because you can't sing it properly, we've got to play the tape sort of thing. He, he was a great character, got on with everyone, and I was very pleased when he became a director, and I worked with him, and we worked on this with all these. <laughs> practical torches in other words they were frames how we got away with it say health and, and the smoke from those absolutely filled the studio and we were they were creeping around in dungeons and corridors and it was so atmospheric and almost impossible to get the sound out because <laughs> the cameras could peep in through holes I couldn't get a boom in and then I had all this technical problem about a slung. I had a man on a gantry with a rifle mic and on a not a radio, a rifle mic on a radio with a pole sort of hanging over the top and booms coming. Anyway, it was a, quite a long sequence. And when we got to the dub, uh, Lenny said, ah, did, you, "Did you do all that on a radio mic?" No, don't be silly. This, that was done on proper mics, just fade from one to the other as it goes along. And you couldn't believe it had worked. There we are. That's my pat on the back. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I, um, oh, then there's the Sea Devils, another Michael E. Bryant. Sea Devils has a, a very ah. eccentric score by Malcolm Clark. There's a little story to that, that they were, I think they were climbing down a, like a metal shaft in one stage, and I've gone to some trouble to put clamp a microphone you've heard this no no I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging that you're that I know the sequence you're talking yes, yeah, about yeah and we've got this amazing every time they moved it, it clanged uh, and when we got to do the uh, to lay the music up uh, Malcolm who I, I don't from Radiophonics and he um, he produced music that mimicked every clang bomb I said oh no what have you done to my sound <laughs> And the director I sent him away and told him to uh, to rescore it. Oh, really? <laughs> so we kept my clang bang wallops, and, yeah. and, and he, he, he 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 came back a bit on the music. So <laughs> the other use of echo I had was a, a, again in 
Cypher, Cypher was the, the first of the uh, rock and roll dubbing suites, um, was they wanted, and I've forgotten what it was, uh, not isotonic, permafrost, there was this sort of permafrost coming down about to engulf them and we were trying to get this noise that what it wasn't quite working with what we got and in desperation I got hold of this Grampian spring and shook it <laughs> and it went <laughs> and that's how you make molten ice that's, that was molten yeah, ice that's Planet of the Daleks for David what? Maloney that was one. it? Yeah. oh right yeah. oh, well, it was ice volcanoes ice volcanoes I'm trying to get this sound of this uh, well David was obviously happy but so was I <laughs> uh, so there you are you, uh, you had to make, make things up as you go along yeah because I, I was also very lucky that I was given the, uh, a little machine called the Synthy A which I saw recently in the Science Museum uh, that was 50 years ago it, a synthesizer I think A stood for analogue because it was and it had um, various oscillators uh, and pink sound and sweepable EQ uh, and I'm probably getting a bit technical but you could, right. you could modulate one, one say one uh, one tone with a very low frequency one so it went and there you have your spaceship background. <laughs> ah, very good. And then you could add a bit of hiss, so it goes, so you could filter, put, put bits of hissing stuff in as well. So you're creating an ambience. For you inside. can create an ambience. Yeah. Uh, we could. It also had the ring modulator, so I think we used that eventually instead of this breadboard thing. Um, but that was a nice bit of kit. Uh, that was probably why I was sent to Radiophonics, so I could learn how to use it properly. <laughs> so, and then Tom Baker joins. Yeah. And you do Genesis of the Daleks, which is considered to be one Stavros. of the very best. Yeah, yeah. I cannot re- really remember, but I do know that there was a sort of a sketch of the sort of thing that they were going to do. And I said, well, I'm, my problem is this is a live situation. You've got actors talking normally, like we are now, and in the middle of it, you've got someone who's doing this croaky old voice and I've got to separate it, so I will need a microphone that's virtually down his throat. I think somewhere in the script it had once said it would be a throat mic, then nasty. So I got them to make up a, a little boom, if you like, with a, a bit like a modern head and, head and breast set, the set is head and, you know, the, uh, the sort of thing on a twig, yeah, like yeah. a little twig. Yeah. And it was sort of supposed to have got lost, because I think I brought it over the top. Uh, it was supposed to integrate with all the other life support Because he got tubes, wires and stuff. Yeah. All the other wires, I think. Am I right in thinking, therefore, with, with Michael Wisher having his voice treated um, to sound Davros, yeah, yeah. if anyone had got too close, would they have... Was, was your job to sort of make sure that they didn't sound Davrosy too? If they were talking to him, yet yeah, very close, yes, it would have been partly boom, and then the boom would have picked up the direct voice from the actor as well. So I'd have had a bit of a problem, and I think there was a bit of a fader twiddling to uh, to keep it, to try and keep this bit clean, because I don't think we were in the business of post-production at that time, and then you'd have had to have gone through and cut things, it would have got complicated, so that was done live, well, it and was, it worked, it I was, think. Uh, it was worth it, it's one of the best, I mean, yeah. it's one of the best yeah. top two creations of all, I think. Yeah. Uh, we, we alluded to, you had an assistant on Planet of Evil, Brendan Shaw. 
So yes. why were there suddenly two of you credited for this? Uh, he was actually a... He, uh, like I'd done years previously, he was on a sound training course and uh, he was very good and I let him sit in the seat and do things. So right. it, it was practical training. So would that have been his first credit then as a result of that? It may well have been. He did quite a lot of the mixing, yeah. And that was, um, that was set on a sort of jungle planet that was uh, filmed in Ely. It was a set by oh, was it? Roger Marley, yeah, yeah. which was done in Ely. Uh-huh. And then bits of it transferred to... to uh, the television studios, it was David Maloney again. David Maloney, yes. Was, I mean, you, you sort of mentioned that you like, so what was it about him that. that I you don't know, liked? he was just. Um, it was just fun. Uh, he knew what he wanted. Uh, he directed from the floor a lot. He had a very loud voice, so everyone knew what, on the floor what was going on. Um, and um, somehow just we, we, we worked quite well. He trusted me and I trusted him. And so would, how did the setup work? Because you worked a lot for, say, Maloney. Would, yeah. would a director request you or did you just get assigned randomly to, to programmes? Well, at the beginning it was a bit of luck that uh, the, the sound manager who allocated people gave me a tryout, if you like, uh, on the early Doctor Who's. I think it was in Lime Grove. I did the first one with... Bill Kerr, you remember Bill Kerr? Yeah, that's the enemy of the world. Yeah, and that's right. Mary Peach. That's right. With very tight white trousers. Shush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, that was, I think, one of the first ones. Yeah, that was your yeah. first. That's your first credit. Was it really? Yeah, which oh, was God. yeah. Barry, the Barry Letts directed. Yeah. Milton Johns is in it, mm. uh, playing a very. Very smooth. Yeah, very sadistic. And yeah, a bit, bit greasy. Yeah, yes. yeah. very greasy. <laughs> yeah. He was great the... at that, yeah. Oh, brilliant. He's, yeah. he's wonderful. Yeah, going back, when I was allowed to do booms as a new boy, and we did Z cars, and that was live and uh, hairy. Yeah. <laughs> Six cameras, people in the wrong sets at the wrong time. Bits falling over, and the man in vision saying, "Oh, I hear the builders are in again." <laughs> uh, that did happen. Um, yeah, there's a, a yeah live multi-camera was. Uh, I mean, for a boom up as well. That was that was great when it worked. Uh, Exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, gave, it gave an edge. It may have been a bit rough around the around the corners, but the core of it. Was was I don't know there's an enthusiasm and uh, you know, everyone trying to make it work, yeah, uh, trying to smooth off the rough corners and yeah, as well is well. nice. Yeah. Well, well coming coming to yeah, the end of your yeah. period on Doctor Who, you've got the brain of Morbius, which is uh, my yes, Philip Maddock. Yes, very very quietly spoken. He didn't project very much, and it was a bit of a problem for sound. <laughs> <laughs> didn't mumble, I mean, you could hear, it was very quiet, and it was, that was the way he saw it, I mean, I don't, yeah. Um, and that one, that one had, I think, one of the, the difficulties of Doctor Who, is that it got a nice set by, we, we mentioned this before we started, Barry Newbury of this sort of rocky planet, oh, yeah. it's a rocky planet made of wood, yeah. so oh, you've, got got to try and, you've got to try and stop it Stop it sound like, yes, I didn't achieve that. You can hear it. <laughs> so, yeah. what, what steps would you have gone to? Why, why would that prove um, insuperable? Just because there's no way of taking it out and not losing the actors' voices. You could nowadays, yes. You could when he's not speaking, duck things out, and you put more glue, what I call glue tracks, more atmosphere to try and mask 
so you hear the atmosphere rather than the footsteps. And um, I don't know if they were probably wearing soft shoulder shoes, but I, apart from doing it properly, it's very difficult. Yeah. And you, or you end up post-producing the whole thing, and they have to resynchronize all the dialogue in the studio, watching themselves, and then you replace everything, all the sounds of the clothing moving, the backgrounds. You know, they might move something. But, you know, like putting something down on a table. You've got to read, and that would take hours. Yeah. And um, it can be done, but it's, uh, films do it. Uh, but yeah, I think again, if they've got to act without movement, post, I mean, you can do bits, you know, they can get away with that. Brendan developed quite an art of doing that, I think, on EastEnders and things, you know. Uh, you, you get people who are walking in the distance, you get enough for a guide track and you go back and they say, right, now do it again, don't move and you just put the microphone closer and uh, because they've just done it, sorry, they, uh, it should re it should resynchronize with the distant shots. Okay. You, you, yeah. Yeah, there are cheats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, why did you stop doing Doctor Who? I think I left the BBC. Why yeah. did you leave the BBC? I think I got bored, and, and I'd been working on my days off with my brother-in-law in a garage, and it was different. I think it was beginning to change anyway, that after Hugh, Hugh Weldon brought in the Kinsey people, and it health, not health and safety, uh, time and motion, and you, you had to justify every expense, and it was tightening up, and I'd rather got used to, uh, if it's good for the programme, do it. Approach. Um, you know, I, I think if you had to then justify how many boom ops you had, and why can't you do it on two booms and move move quicker between sets and things, and all that sort of stuff was coming in. So that coloured my in, uh, my uh, my decision a bit, uh, and I'm just retired and I sing a lot now. Got to go to three choirs. Uh, I don't record them. I I just enjoy it. Uh, and that's it, really. Well, that's wonderful. Well, I've, I've very much enjoyed talking to you. Um, we didn't even get on to Blake Seven. Um, Mr. Blake himself was in the first series. Um, I remember one episode, there, was, uh, there were problems getting sound out, and I resorted to putting them on a radio mic. Uh, there was a break while they reset something. Uh, I'd left his microphone open. In other words, it went to the world including the production suite, uh, I didn't realise, because I was chatting to someone else, that it was on, and he was in the loo talking to someone else, saying what a load of rubbish the production values were. <laughs> and he'd been promised this, that and the other. And um, somebody then jogged me and said, Oi, <laughs> I faded it out, but I think it was too late. I, I did apologise to Gareth afterwards. I don't think he understood the inference, because uh, uh, after that first series... Uh, he, he, he was released, and uh, I think it was Avon uh, became yeah, the head Paul of Darrow. Paul Darrow, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I still apologise, that was negligent of me, but uh, it's a little, little anecdote. <laughs> if, if you ever do anything with a radio mic, make sure you know how to turn it off, or at least cover it with your 
<laughs> there have been numerous other things that uh, people I didn't realise they're still wired for sound. Yeah, you must have got all the gossip on everyone. You must have been able to listen in when people didn't think that anyone could hear them. Uh, there's nothing that I can remember that you'd want to hear. <laughs> uh, there was Harold Wilson, of course, at Lime Grove, when he was asked about something. And have you asked um, Heath how he paid for his yacht? Uh, I don't want this recorded. There's always a leak when I come to Lime Grove, which was actually structurally correct because it was a very old building and it did leak. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that, that tape went round the world, I think. <laughs> There's always a leak when I come to Lime Grove. <laughs> As if to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what what else see, did I do? Uh, Nigel Neal. Uh, Nigel Neal. Nigel Neal. Stone tape. Um, that, that was quite interesting, yes. Um... Peter Sazdy. Peter Sazdy, that's right. Hungarian. Yeah. Did a lot of hammer, hammer, did a lot of films. Uh, not at all sympathetic to technical problems. Uh, I know we were having to use what they they set up microphones to record these so-called sounds that came out of the stone. There was the theory was that stones would retain memory of what had happened, and they were after this. Was it some lady who got killed and yes. there's running footsteps? Yeah. I remember I had my children running up and down on a carpet, but with a scuffy sort of running, not so that they had to try and get this. There was a thought of trying to stick sandpaper on the bottom of one of the artist's shoes. To, uh, it didn't quite work, but... Uh, the problem was that during the rehearsals I was actually um, at, at the Old Bailey as a juror. <laughs> as I was coming home and making things, you know, trying to catch up with what was going on. And there was a personal problem, I couldn't actually do the dubs, so someone else did the dubs. So I was only partly involved in that. But that was quite a production. Good and I, show, and it, it was sounds an quite important. It was an well. interest, interesting concept. Uh, I don't know why we didn't get more from Nigel. Another one, of course, is uh, Potter. Dennis. Dennis. Brimstone and Treacle. Oh, banned. You were banned. Uh, allegedly, all the tapes were wiped, but uh, somehow one fell, fell through the cracks and was transmitted. In the meantime, Sting had done it on... And I don't know how good it was, but that's when I first met Denham Elliot and Mike Kitchen. Wonderful. Uh, there, there are some actors that stick in the mind. Peter Barworth was another one. Peter Barkworth? Barkworth. I did something with him and Hannah Gordon, I think. I forgot what it was called. And it was involved him walking from one room through a corridor and into another room as a continuous action. And at the outside rehearsal, he came to me and said, is there anything I can do because you're going to have trouble with the sound? I said, no, I'll be all right. Just be aware that there'll be a, there will be a, a, a slung mic and it will be just before the door. If you could just go through the door, you know, with a, using a comma or something, I will pick you up on the other side on a boom. And it will, he just knew exactly what was going on. He was very precise technically as an actor, wasn't he? Yes, yes, yes. yeah. Um, so, Denham Elliott and um, Mike Kitchen are doing... I've forgotten who the girl was, uh, but that was an interesting... Michelle Newell. Yeah. Technically, that was quite difficult because the booms and the lighting were in conflict because of the production demands. We got there in the end. 
uh, although my Boomer, whose name has already been mentioned, uh, did shout, not shout, but point out to the lighting man that I have to put the microphone there, they don't speak out of the back of their heads. <laughs> um, peace was eventually made and we got it done, but uh, it was getting a bit tense. Um, again, television is a compromise, mm. uh, and as long as I win, I don't mind that. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, uh, I think we've won this one. It's fant- absolutely fantastic. Um, what's your charity, Tony? Uh, UK Diabetic. Uh, everyone does cancer, yeah. but UK Diabetics do a good job, and um, personally, I'm, I'm aware of what they do. Well, look, doc, yes, doc, so what's your message to the Doctor Who fans on this, the 50th birthday of Doctor Who? Do you know, I don't watch it anymore. Uh, I watched some of the earlier ones, and I didn't like the fact it had gone so... I don't know. High production, the music had been augmented and each time they do a new series they do something else to the music and it's not the Doctor Who I remember. Uh, I'll live with my memories. uh, My son assures me that it's brilliant. I did catch a bit with Catherine Tate. I thought that was brilliant. And maybe I should have persevered. uh, Well, it's not obligatory, but uh, (laughs) uh, we've got lots of memories of Doctor Who thanks to your work on it. So, Tony Millier, thank you very much. That's great. That's Tony, one of those uh, great behind-the-scenes people who I don't think has ever been interviewed before. So um, thanks to the old BBC network uh, for putting me in touch with him and to him, of course, for uh, allowing himself to be interviewed by an anthropomorphised anorak. That's me, uh, who's now asking you to donate to Tony's charity, which is UK Diabetes, Diabetes UK, which is www.diabetes.org.uk diabetes.org.uk The next Who's Round will be out shortly and will sound a little something like this but thanks for listening to this one and uh, thanks again to Tony Millian If there's anyone I can thank for any television career I think probably it's it's Dougie, he was an absolute force of nature, total enthusiast Um, uh, just infected people with his energy he was the most wonderful man Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, The Omega Factor. Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. The end. In this case, the end of scientific knowledge. We are asking you to go further than that end, beyond the end. To the Omega Factor. And further. Big Finish. We love stories.